name's Derek Mack. Um, grew up on the East Coast. Um, when I was 18, I became a missionary. I became a Christian and a missionary basically at the same time. I was a drug addict before that, and I don't know honestly how I'm standing before you. Uh, I feel that sense of trembling as a preacher most times. One, because I got to talk on behalf of him to you guys, which is a terrifying thing, because one day I'm going to have to give an account for the things that I say to you, number one. And then number two is, is who am I? Just some kid from the East Coast of the States had no, I was so terrified of public speaking that I took public speaking in high school because I thought it would be an easy A, and I didn't actually realize that I have to speak in front of people. And I got C's on most of my assignments, and the only reason I got a C is because the guy felt bad for me because I just stood up there. At least I said something out loud. And now I speak publicly. I was like Moses. I had a stutter, literally. First time my mom ever heard me speak, she started weeping, and she was so shocked. She came up to after me afterwards to me, and she said, Where, where's the stutter? And so the Lord can take a drug addict, and if he can take me, then he can take you, and he can use you as well. My, I'm part of a ministry called Circuit Riders. We're under the umbrella of Youth of the Mission. And um, my father-in-law started Circuit Riders, uh, and he passed away about nine months ago. Greatest man I ever knew, greatest man I ever met. Um, he was the type of man that was larger than life. He, he lived five lives in one. He died at 57, but I guarantee you he lived to 150 in the spirit because that guy did so much. It's unbelievable. And I was honored to know him and be able to sit under him. And our last conversation was about me accepting my calling. And how, how he got his calling, I guess you could say, was in a very unusual way. He was a pastor of a church in Tacoma, Washington. And this church was vibrant. It started out of a university mission. And as a matter of fact, it started in one of the most ambiguous ways you could possibly imagine. My father-in-law did not believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit still functioning today, and he directly opposed it, but he was open and hungry to God moving, which is why he ended up in the position he was in. And one Sunday morning, the pastor gave him the opportunity to speak, and he spoke on a religious spirit, a spirit of a Pharisee. And as he spoke, a man who was demonized stood up, came on stage and began to speak to the audience and call out sin publicly. And he was right. And my father-in-law standing there going, uh, I don't believe in this. And he told the pastor what happened. Next week, the pastor had him preach the same message and the same thing happened. And people began to be delivered and saved on this university campus that they were ministering to, so much so that his church grew to five, six hundred people that were just university students. And they got into every high school. And they got into every prison. And they were ministering and there was powerful deliverance and powerful healing and the gospel was being proclaimed and people were being saved. And, and in about 2008, my father-in-law started to get comfortable in his calling, so to speak. And I feel at times that we as Christians can get too comfortable being Christians that show up once a week and watch someone do something and just partake in what goes on in this building. And we don't understand that this building is only a rallying point 
It's not the main thing. The main thing is actually when you're out there and the pastor and the minister on stage and, and the people that you find are radical Christians are not the, the people that you're to look to and go, they're doing it, I get to sit on the sidelines. The reason the book of Acts is the way the book of Acts is because everyone participated, everyone partook, not just one or two people doing all the work. You have an assignment. You have a calling. You have a mission. We are all in one mission together. Some people speak, some people don't. Some people do one thing, some people do another. Some people make a bunch of money, some people are the people that get the money from the people who make it and then go. Which one are you? You don't get an option, I said this last night, you don't get an option if you're to go. You only are to receive orders on where and when. Not if. If is not the question. If, is, if we're asking that question, then we missed Jesus' last commandment. Go into all the world. You don't need a prophetic word to go. Jesus already told you what to do. And if your boss came to you and said, hey, I got an assignment for you, and you go, okay, cool, I'll get that done in 2,000 years. What would you say? What would your boss say? You're fired. The church has taken far too long to, Jesus, to do Jesus' main mission and last commandment to us. My father-in-law in 2008 got too comfortable, and he loved this evangelist named Reinhard Bonnke. Anybody ever heard of him? German evangelist, preached to millions in Africa, saw 80 million decisions for Christ just through his mission, mission in Africa. And he was doing an evangelism training and, and ministering to different evangelists in Orlando, Florida in 2008 and at a gathering. And my father-in-law was able to go. And after the first session, the uh, man of God, Reinhard Bonnke, is talking to every other man of God and woman of God and shaking their hands, bless you and bless you and bless you. And then he gets to my father-in-law and he looks at him and he says, you, sir, when was the last time you've done something preposterous with your life? Do you have a church salary? That's your problem. Get rid of your church salary and do something preposterous with your life. As my father-in-law tried to recover from, you know, someone like that rebuking you without even knowing you, he went to the donut table, as you might assume, to recover, get an eclair, get some chocolate in his system. And Reinhard Bonnke's uh, assistant happened to be at this table. His name was Peter Vandenberg. And he looked at my father-in-law without hearing or knowing what Reinhard Bonnke did. Looked at him and goes, you, sir, you have a church salary? That's your problem. You need to get rid of that church salary and do something preposterous with your life. Now, it would be highly offensive for most people who have a church like that that's actually thriving to hear something like that. Most people would get offended. My father-in-law did not. My father-in-law went into the parking lot, began to weep, and repented for his safe, comfortable lifestyle that he was living. He went back home, sold his house, gave his church to some other pastors, moved to Kona, Hawaii, became a missionary with his 
deathly sick wife and four kids on $1,500 of monthly support. From that place of Kona, in Kona, Hawaii, he began to seek the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him about a movement called circuit riders that would go on universities and begin to minister the gospel to the universities of America. And now we're on 500 universities across America and Europe, Africa as well. The beginning of your calling, however old or young you are, might seem insignificant. $1,500 of monthly support in Kona, Hawaii, in California, is called homelessness. And yet this man was ambitious for the gospel, and he didn't want to play it safe. How many Christians around the world play it safe? I want to read you something from the book of Esther. Esther is this grand novel. Do you know the word God never shows up in the book of Esther? There's at one time that God is mentioned, yet God is written into the story by the lifestyle of people who determine not to play it safe. Mordecai hears. Let me be a Mordecai to you this morning. Mordecai was Esther's uncle, and he was the catalyst for her moving into her calling. Mordecai hears about Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Esther's in the king's palace, and Mordecai says, you need to do something, Esther. And Esther replies, I can't do anything. I haven't seen the king in 30 days. I'm not allowed to go in there. If I do and he doesn't extend his scepter to me, if I'm not invited in there, I could die. Mordecai replies like this. Do not think, this is verse 13 of chapter 4, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any other Jew. For if you keep silent, we have far too many silent Christians. Christianity is not a silent religion. It is not a, you find that the, the loudest people in Christian history who were the most bold and most unashamed are you unashamed of the gospel this morning? Most people are sadly ashamed of the gospel because, oh no, they're going to say something negative about me. Or I might get a cold look. Or, or a family member might say something rude to me at our next Christmas gathering or whatever it might be. And so we get ashamed of the gospel because we value our reputation more than we value the reputation of Jesus Christ. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You do not have to say yes to the calling of Jesus Christ over your life. He will accomplish his mission on the earth with or without you. But the glory of being a Christian is not that you get to show up once a week. It's that you get to partake with the God of the universe and participate in his mission. And if you say yes to it. If you say yes to it, your life will not be wasted. Oh, what a tragedy it would be to live a wasted life. I had an uncle in 2020 who passed away. He was worth $100 million. It's a lot of money. And I love my uncle. He helped raise me in a lot of ways. And the tragic thing was that he didn't get 80 years. We assume we get 80 years. He didn't get 80 years. He died at 45. And... He died tragically in his sleep. He had cardiovascular disease and didn't know it. And he woke up dead. And I, I would imagine that my uncle, if he was preaching here today, would have a different message than what most people hear in the West on Sunday mornings about self-help, 
living a good life, how to, how to use your finances wisely, which none of those things are wrong, but they're secondary. They're all to serve a greater purpose and mission in your life. Do not waste it. You get one of them. How many of you have ever played video games? Only like two of you. <laughs> you ever played a video game? What happens when you fail? Well, start over. We assume that life is that way, that I'll just get a second chance at some point. You don't. And you don't know when your time will be. Do not waste it. The wasted life is not determined on how much time you get. It's determined on what you do with the time you get. Deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But for you and your father's house, it will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You were born in a time where you probably did not cause most of the societal issues. You were born in a place that you did not choose to a family you did not choose. You were born to societal norms and cultures that you did not get to pick, yet you were born nonetheless. And the question for the Christian is, will you take responsibility for things that you did not cause? God is a father to orphans. He did not have to father people that were orphans. If there are orphans in the world right now, they are not necessarily your responsibility. But nonetheless, there they are. And what God requires of us is that we see needs that we did not cause and we respond to them and take responsibility for them. You are to take responsibility for things you did not cause. He goes on. Esther replied, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will go and fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. How many of you have ever said a line like that in the cause of Jesus Christ? If I perish, I perish. We need people who love their lives not unto death. We need people who, who will fling their lives away in the cause of Christ and will not care more about safety and comfort and nice houses and two cars and retiring early and collecting shells on a beach somewhere. We need people who care more about the mission of Jesus than they do about their golf swing. We need people who will be willing. See, the word witness in the New Testament is the word martyr. So when we think of uh, when we think of witnessing, we we usually think of of saying something to other people. But but witnessing starts with a, a heart posture that is willing to give everything and do anything in the cause of Jesus. And it doesn't matter if it's in Moncton or if it's in Timbuktu or if it's in Iraq or if it's in Southeast Asia. If I perish, I perish. What will be your sustainer? As a Christian, what will be the thing that will actually motivate you into this calling, into this mission, into doing something? See, motivation and discipline are bad alternatives to what Jesus Christ offers you. See, I love discipline. I'm a highly disciplined person. I get up at a certain point. I get up at about 5.30 every morning. I pray. I read my Bible. I work out. And then I do my work that I need to do throughout the day, prepare my messages that I need to preach. All that. I'm a disciplined person. I'm for discipline. I'm for motivation. 
When I work out, I'm listening to motivational speeches. I'm like, yeah, I do suck. I need to work harder. Let's go. Right? I love motivation. I love those things, but they will not sustain you in the long run if you're going to follow Jesus Christ for 60 years. I'm not interested in a meeting for an hour where people are inspired and then do nothing the next 60 years of their lives. I want to provide something more than that. Those two things are good, but they're not the ultimate. The ultimate is joy. Do you enjoy giving everything to Jesus Christ? Out of joy, Jesus says, a man will sell all that he has, buy the field, and get the treasure. Out of joy, a merchant searching for great pearls, when he finds one, will sell everything and buy that pearl. The key to selling is to valuing those things out there far less than you value Jesus Christ. And the great hindrances to joy in our lives are usually wrapped up in five things. Number one is selfishness. I mentioned this at our evangelism training the other day or yesterday. Selfishness is the disposition of our generation, my generation. What we think goes... It's all about our feelings and our opinions. It is funny to me that phones with front-facing cameras so we can take selfies where we edit those selfies. We edit them to make them look better than they do. We post our faces on our social media and we tell people, we tell everybody what we think about stuff. In any other society, that would be called narcissism. If you were a 90s kid like me, if you're a 90s kid like me, your mom took family photos and put them on the mantle. And if you go on most people's Instagrams and you start scrolling, you, you'll see their face 95% of the time. Can you imagine taking people's Instagram profiles and then putting them as pictures in the house like your mom did in the 90s? Walk inside, wow. Person seems to love themselves a lot. Selfishness has become our disposition. Selfishness has become, it's about me. My church is to serve me. My pastor is to serve me. Other people around me are to serve me. And when they hurt me, I'll leave and I'll go to a different church until that church hurts me. You know, I was listening to Francis Chan one time and Francis Chan did a, did a pastor's gathering and he asked the pastors, what, uh, how do you identify a successful church? Let's just write it down. And the pastors go, well, you need a big parking lot because uh, people want to be able to park where they want to park. And you need a good children's ministry. If you have a good children's ministry, most people will come back a second time at least. And you need coffee out at the front there because people want to be, be welcomed. And make sure that you get the greeters to smile. If they don't smile, then kick them out of your church. So he started writing all this stuff down, and he just asked, wait, 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 just, just pause for a second. Everything you told me is about what you think your congregation needs and wants. What does the Bible actually say a successful church is? And every church, every pastor was just, we've built something that is based off of what we think and what we want, and selfishness has become our disposition. And the reason that I'm going to share some statistics here in a moment. The reason that the nations have not been reached is not because we don't have the resources, the time. It's because we don't have the willingness. What we want is what goes. We must destroy 
selfishness. Another thing is passivity. Right now, there are over 3 billion people across the planet who've never heard the gospel. There are millions of people in America and Canada who do not care about the gospel. And any form of Christianity that looks at that and says, pastor's job, person sitting next to me's job, someone else's job, on fire Christian's job is not Christianity at all. Tell me why in the book of Acts they were willing to sell houses for one another. Was it because there was a mandate to do it? No, it was because they lived in the disposition that I'm going to give anything and do anything at any moment to represent the cross of Christ. We have a cross somewhere in here? No? Okay, all right, here's the cross. The cross is not the logo of a religion. It's how your life is supposed to look to other people. When they see you, they should see a cross. They should see someone who who is as willing as Jesus was to go to the cross for you to be able to do those type of things as well. Can you imagine, I said this last night, can you imagine if we sold houses for one another? Some young person goes, I'm going to Timbuktu for the gospel. And the only problem is I have no money. Before you can finish your offering speech, young person, someone in the house, someone in the back stands up and says, I'll sell my house for you. What would that be like? What would it be like to have that type of Christianity where we were so not passive, we were so caring that we looked at the world around us and we looked at the other people and what can I give to you? How can I lay down my life? How can I serve you? Passivity and selfishness destroy your joy in the gospel. Another thing is fear. You know, I used to be an Uber driver. I can't anymore. I got too many tickets. And, uh, and one night I was Ubering um, and I picked up these five people and they got in my car and they immediately started talking about all the drugs, all the sex, everything they were doing. And they started making one of this, fun of this one girl in particular. And she was really promiscuous and she paused them at one point and goes, well, at least I believe in Jesus. And I was so perplexed by that statement, my be- blood began to boil because there's this type of gospel that's preached in America that says you can name the name but live like the devil. And so I prepared this sermon in my mind. I was ready to fire it off my tongue. And, and as they were getting off the, off, uh, out of the car, the words were it stuck to my tongue. And I turned off the Uber app after they left, drove back home, was on the Pacific Coast Highway, and I began banging my hands on the steering wheel saying, Derek, why is it that you're so prone to being a coward? Why is it that you like to be liked so much? Why is it, Derek, that you are so scared of what other people would think about you? That moment at 1 a.m. in the morning, I determined that my name and the word coward would not be spoken in the same breath when I stand before Jesus Christ on that day. Do not fear is the most often repeated commandment in the entire scripture. If it's the most often repeated commandment in the entire scripture, how seriously do you, th- you should you take it to be courageous? to live with courage, to do the wild thing. Guys, I've never overcome the feeling of fear. There's never been a moment where I haven't, when I decided to preach the gospel or step out or do something for Jesus that's out of the ordinary, that I haven't felt that feeling of fear. But here's the thing. 
Am I going to allow my feelings to dominate me or am I going to allow truth to dominate me? For far too long, we've trumpeted our feelings over this book and it must end. We must determine to stake our lives. See, courage is not about overcoming that feeling. It's about when you feel fear that you still do something. That's courage. That's what it means to be courageous. The scripture says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. If I got to videotape you for a whole week and not be a creeper, if I got to see your life, would I see a mouse or would I see a lion? The righteous, it's qualified. If you are righteous, if you've been made righteous, then you are as bold as a lion. You can be bold for eating a certain type of hot sauce. You can be bold for jumping off a cliff. Wow, we think you're bold. But according to the scripture, Christians are to look like lions. We need that sense within us now, especially in this day, in this hour, where fear is almost everybody's disposition. Should not be your disposition. Courage and radical action should be your disposition. Fourth thing that kills your joy and your obedience is unbelief. The scripture takes unbelief very seriously. So seriously that the Israelites were not allowed to enter the... They weren't allowed. It's not that they couldn't. They weren't allowed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Ten spies go in and they're fearful of giants. Two come out and they have a good report. The report is this. Those giants are our breakfast. Why? Because they didn't see them as giants? No. Because there weren't enemies and armies that would oppose them? No. They weren't these, these hopeful and blind people saying there's nothing wrong. There's no giant. There's nothing to overcome. We can do it. No. They didn't rest in the arm of the flesh, those two spies. What they did is they bowed their knee to the promise, not to the obstacle. Too many Christians bow their knee to the obstacle, to the opposition. And they say, if that's there, then I have to find the easier route. Unbelief is finding the easier way, the easier route. If I became, if your pastor, let me, let me say this. If your pastor came to you and said, okay, I got an assignment for you. Ooh, what is it, pastor? I want you to go to a graveyard and raise one dead person. Not two, just one. What would you do? Good. What is the American church? I'm speaking, I'm, I'm from America, so I'm going to talk about the American church. What do we do? See, we're, we're called to raise dead people no matter what you think. We're, there's, there's dead people and there's living people. And in the West, we go, oh, we need light, nice lights. We need a nice stage. We need a speaker with tight jeans. And man, if we can, can you imagine going to the graveyard and you're like, okay, man, we got the best speaker. He's right there. Okay, you're going to preach this message. And, and we got the lights. We got the stage. We got the worship leader. And they're just going for it, man. And you're standing around a grave. Would any of that do anything? No. What would, what would have to be a part of your life? A radical and unwavering faith that God raises the dead. Not anything else that you add to it. Those things aren't bad. I like lights. I like stages. I like speaking. I'm a conviction junkie. I just find the most wild sermons that convict me. And I just listen to them on repeat, basically. And like, yeah, I, I'm a terrible person. Gosh, this is awesome. 
<laughs> and I find the most convict, right? But we sometimes get addicted to the conviction without actually going to do anything about it. Conviction needs to turn into unction. Unction will become action. Do not let unbelief be your mainstay. Do not believe the reports of the media. Unbelief sounds like this. God can't, God doesn't, God won't. Faith sounds like God can, God does, God will. It's not that you need to look at the world and be hopefully unaware of what's going on and just imagine that everything's going to turn out great. No, you need to face the giants and you need to say, my God cuts giants' heads off. Like David did, right? See, the story of David is so funny to me. The amount of times that pastors and preachers will talk about, you're David, you're David, you're David, but then we still live in so much fear. The story of David is not so much me being David, it's Jesus is David. And I'm cowering Israel. What happens when Jesus cuts Goliath's heads off? David cuts Goliath's head off. The whole army rises. And then they go to war. And they go to battle. See, what happens when Jesus confronts our unbelief and he shows up in power? It starts to muster everybody else up. All it takes is one or two of us to do something radical. And everybody else goes, oh, I can live that way too. Can you imagine if a whole church was that way? A whole congregation was decidedly, I'm going to live in faith. Number five is, is the unsurrendered heart. And I'm going to end with this in the next five, ten minutes here. The unsurrendered heart. You know, I used to live in an apartment in Southern California, and this is my greatest moment as a missionary of being unsurrendered. And I had a next-door neighbor, and he was this classic Southern California surfer kid, 18 years old, and, and he barely spoke English properly, and he was like, yeah, man, sick. And that's how he talked. Um, and, he, and he came up to me one time um, after I'd gotten back from a trip, and he goes, hey, um, you want to smoke weed later? And I go, no. He goes, okay. And he went back to his apartment. He came back up to my apartment five minutes later, and he goes, hey, do you want a drink later? I was like, no. He goes, Okay, went back down, and he came back upstairs and goes, hey, man, the Cowboys play the Eagles later. You want to watch a football game with me? I go, sure. What's Jesus trying to get me to do? I mean, the guy's coming to me. I mean, this isn't even like hard. You don't have to be a prophet. I'm not a prophet nor the son of one, but I know what's happening here. Jesus is bringing this man to me. And I had just gotten back from this trip, and, and although I had said yes, I was tired, and so I went back downstairs, and I told him, hey, man, let's hang out next weekend. So he gave me his phone number. Next Saturday, I have phone number in, in hand, in the phone, ready to text. And then, man, I'm tired. I didn't really get to get a break this week. I'm going to text him tomorrow. So Sunday comes around. About to text him. Same thing. I'm tired. I want to rest today. About 10 hours, about six, seven hours later, early afternoon, I hear the worst scream I've ever heard in my entire life. It was such a violent scream that it actually shocked me. I ran outside, and, and this lady had run out of this guy's apartment, and she was screaming, crying. A couple minutes later, another girl ran out. She's screaming, crying. Two minutes later, the ambulance and the fire department rolls up. They go inside. They come out. Two minutes later, my mom's a firefighter, paramedic, and I know when, someone, when they go in a house, and come out a house and no one's on the stretcher. Two minutes later, someone's dead on scene. Both this kid and his girlfriend had overdosed on heroin that morning when I was about to text them. 
I can't tell you what that did to me. Now, I don't need any of you to come up to me afterwards and say, there's grace and no shame. And I get it. But there is something in this where I have to say to myself, I was unsurrendered. I cared more about my comforts, my feelings, and what I thought and what I wanted to do than what Jesus was calling me to do. And we must be surrendered even when we don't want to. That's the essence of deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Does anybody willfully want to pick up an electric chair and follow Jesus? I mean, that's what it would sound like in our day and age. Deny yourself, pick up your electric chair, follow me. How many of us actually want to do that? But that's the essence of it. Out of joy, someone does something crazy to other people. See, if you have a joy in your foundation, the cross doesn't seem so shameful. And the burden doesn't seem so shameful. And the, the radical action that Jesus requires of us doesn't seem so hard and toiling. I remember my father-in-law, when I first started dating his daughter, oh man, gosh, don't ever date a pastor's daughter unless you want to get spanked all the time. Um, and so he sat me down and he goes, hey, Derek, you're not a very loving person. Thanks, man. It's good. And he made me read this book called If by a woman named Amy Carmichael. And in this book, I read this line. If there be any secret but, B-U-T, if there be any, any hidden but in my heart, anything but that Lord, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Where is your anything but that Lord in your life? I'll go this far and no further. We are on the precipice of what I believe is going to be the greatest move of God in human history. I am not prone and given to cliches. I don't like when we constantly say the same prophetic words over and over again with no reality to them. But I don't need to be a prophet to know that church history goes like this. We have great highs and great lows, same as Israel. Great highs, Josiah discovering the book of the law, tearing his clothes, and there's mercy for a nation for 70 years, and then they're sacrificing their kids to Molech at different times. Highs and lows, highs and lows. It's like a roller coaster. I feel we're coming out of this low, and we're on the rise, and everywhere I've gone in the last, guys, I've traveled, I went from Kona, Hawaii, to Orlando, Florida, from Orlando, Florida, to Germany, from Germany, to the UK, from UK, to Mexico, from Mexico, to LA, from LA, to here, back to LA, and then I go to Indiana in a couple weeks, and then I go to different places in the States, and then I go to Norway, and then I go back to Mexico. I got a lot of traveling to do. Everywhere I go, there's young people and believers who are on fire. And last night, last night was amazing, but probably the most encouraging part of the day for me when I, was, when I walked into the prayer meeting, and I just saw them crying out to God, and I go, oh, this is the type of people that God's going to land on right here. This is where I want to be with 10 people, 12 people who are just crying their guts out, asking God to move, pleading with God for his mercy over a city. And I say to you guys today that there is great mercy. Can we, can we put up some of these stats? I just want, to, I, want you to show, I want you to see the state of global missions right now because I am a missionary to my core. Like, when I first told my wife I liked her, 
don't do this, but maybe do this. It's kind of cool, I guess, but I get made fun of for it. I sat her down. We were at the end of Huntington Beach Beer, you know, pier. Like, there was sunset going on, and these were my three questions I asked my wife. You think, like, you know, they'd be something super romantic. But these were my three questions I asked her. I actually can't remember the third one, but the first two are wild enough. The first one was, are you willing to be a missionary to, be the, to, to go to the Middle East? She said yes. Second one was, are you willing to be a martyr? <laughs> she said yes. I can't remember what the third question was, but then I told her, I like you. And then we started dating. <laughs> That's how I started my relationship. Like, I am a missionary to my core. And you have to understand that you are called both to domestic missions, Moncton. You're called to your neighbor right across the street from you, and you're also called to participate in God's global outreach that's going on right now. Iran and Afghanistan have the fastest growing churches in the world, the largest church in the world, over 100 million people in the underground church in China. In Indonesia in 2018, every 20 seconds, someone was turning from Jesus to Islam. For the first time in history, Bible-believing Christians are in every nation on the planet. More Muslims have come to faith in the last 20 years than the first 1,400 years of Muslim history combined. Wild things are happening around the world. You know, I get the privilege of going to Egypt every so often, and when I go to Egypt, it's my favorite time because every time I just get to hear crazy stories. Literally, they'll sit down with me and they go, yeah, man, we've had more people come to Christ. And, and honestly, it's not even because of our witness. It's because Jesus' people showing up, showing up to people in their dreams. And I heard this one story. It's so wild that I, the only reason I believe it is because of the man who told it. I trust the man so much. And he went and visited a country in the Middle East, and, and a man told him how he came to Christ. And every night, this man that came to Christ, before he was a Christian, he was a Muslim, and every night, a man in white would show up to him and tell him to write and record what he would tell him. And so he'd write and he'd record it. And he'd write it page after page after page. And he started to write on his walls and different stuff. And then a few months after this, this happened every night, a few months after this, a man came to him who was a missionary. And this missionary, for some reason, told him that Jesus was a man in white who dressed in a white robe in the book of Revelation. And the man goes, hey, there's this man in white who shows up to me every night, and he tells me to write stuff. So the man told him, the missionary goes, well, let me see what he told you to write. So he goes back home, and the man had written the entire gospel of John word for word. These are the type of things that are happening around the world. What can God do in Canada? What can God do through your finances being sent to the Middle East to missionaries? What can God do? What can't he do is the better question. What is the challenge that you would like to put to God to do? He will do it and more. Ephesians, do you take this seriously, this verse? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than all that you ask or think according to the power that works within you. I'll end with this, and then we're going to pray. If I became demonized right now, started writhing around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, I'm assuming some of you would hopefully pray for me, but some of you TikTokers in the room would probably go, whoa, look at this. 
And you'd leave and you'd go, wow, man, the preacher became demonized today. It was crazy, craziest church service I've ever been to. And you'd kind of be freaked out probably, but you'd tell people about it. And you'd go and you'd talk and, and it would be, the, how many people are going to hear about the church service today without me becoming demonized? You know, the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and I. Did you hear that? The same power that raised a dead man who was crucified lives in you. What should our disposition be? What should the world look like according to the yes that you give Jesus Christ? Would you all stand up with me for the next moment? I want to pray and ask the Lord to speak to you. Remember, I started this message by telling you about a man, Brian Brandt, my father-in-law, whose last words were to me and to our ministry, accept your call. You have a calling. You do. You might be called to make millions of dollars and give most of it away. You might be called to go to the Middle East. You might be called to be a trainer, a pastor, teacher, evangelist. I don't know what you're called to, but I know you are called to something And I know it's not supposed to be boring. And I know it's not supposed to be lifeless. You have an assignment. God made you. This is the brilliance. God made you exactly as you are. Some of you have long hair. Some of you are bald like Jason there. He'll crush you though. Knows (laughs) jujitsu. He's going to crush me after this. Um, Some of you have blue eyes, some of you have brown eyes. Some of you are tall, some of you are short. Some of you have muscles, some of you don't. (laughs) Some of you are this or that, some of you are smart, some of you less. But you were made and designed exactly as you are for a purpose. And God's design for your life was with intention, it wasn't random. You were made for an assignment. Told the story every service so far and yesterday. Amy Carmichael was a missionary. She's to India. She's white. She's from Northern Ireland. She'd take baths in coffee grounds and water, and she'd dye her skin color, color brown. She'd go into Hindu temples and steal child slaves out of them. It's wild. Women, did you hear that? You got a calling. She had brown eyes. She wanted blue eyes her whole life. But then she realized that she was going into these Hindu temples that if she had blue eyes, everybody would know who she was and that she was not Indian, native Indian. You were made exactly as you are for a purpose. What's your assignment? What's your calling? I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, just to you, and give you a picture or something that you can accomplish and do and start to walk in this week. Maybe you've had it and the Lord wants to reaffirm it to you. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't thought about it at all. Well, now's your time to think. Holy Spirit, I ask for people all over this room, in the name of Jesus, that your spirit would begin to move and speak. That every person in this room would leave feeling an itching desire in their hearts to live out their assignment and their calling, to accept their call. Accept your call today, Christian. You, 
If you feel like you need prayer and you want the Lord to speak to you afresh, would you just come forward? We're going to have some people pray for us in these next moments. Would you just come forward? Don't even think about it. Just come forward. You can come down from the balcony. Come down from here, and we're just going to have people start to pray for you. Some of you men in this room are called to younger men and to train them and disciple them. The biggest problem in society right now is fatherlessness. You want to take up the call to be a father to a generation. Listen to me, men. Hear me now. Passivity has been our disposition. For too long, mothers in the church have brought men to the church who are boring and bored and no one wants to be like. Don't be that way. Be strong and courageous. Look at the men in Scripture. What you see from them. Heroes they were. Daredevil desperados for Jesus. They were braver than the bravest. One of them putting a thousand to flight, ten, ten thousand to flight. You are called to be strong and courageous. You are called to lead men. Be strong and courageous. Raise up other young men. There's an assignment for you. Women in the church, your mothers. Deborah was a mother to Israel. You're to be a mother. There's women around the globe. There's young children around the globe who need you, mothers, who need a mother. You're life bearers. I don't get to be a life bearer. I get to be a father. Father. You get to be a mom who bears life to a generation. What's your calling? What's your assignment? If you're a young person, if you're below 22 in this place, listen to me. Don't waste your young years. Don't. I wish, I was sitting there, I was like, man, I wish I was 16 again and go back to my high school and just be a wild freak for Jesus, telling everybody about the gospel. Be wild now, you'll be a marvel when you're 30. Be wild now, you'll be a marvel when you're 30. Can everybody raise their hands for the next moments? Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd speak to us. Thunder in our hearts thunder in our lives in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask that we would, as we leave this place, as we go out from this place, that you would wreck us for the ordinary. Wreck us for showing up once a week. And we would be itching to communicate the gospel. We'd be itching to disciple. We'd be itching to live your calling in this generation. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. For full services, head over to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's happening here at GT. God bless.